You're listening to the So What Podcast. So Cyril says, somehow God experiences death because the body of Christ has been appropriated by God. It's God's body. Therefore, God dies on a cross. Now we know he doesn't cease to exist, but somehow he's there in that transaction. And to remove him kills our salvation because God has to be a part. So Cyril knows this is how this has to work. It's a mystery, but this is what the Bible says, and we leave it at that. Welcome to the So What Podcast, where we discuss theological and philosophical issues to ask that obvious question, so what? I'm your host, Kyle Bashirs, and I'm joined by our cast of contributors, Matt O'Reilly, Brad Mills, and Travis Buchanan. Well, in this episode, we're happy to have Dr. Robert Olson with us in studio to discuss Nestorius and Nestorianism. Dr. Olson received his PhD in early church history from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary in Wake Forest, North Carolina. He currently serves as Associate Professor of Christian Studies at the University of Mobile. Well, before we head over to our discussion, we'd like to thank you for listening to the So What Podcast and for sharing it with your friends. If you enjoy the show, please help our podcast grow by rating and reviewing it in iTunes. You can find out more information about the show and its contributors at SoWhatPodcast.com. Questions about this and any future episodes can be submitted by emailing hello at SoWhatPodcast.com. You can keep up with the latest news by following us on Twitter at SoWhat underscore podcast or by liking our Facebook page. Just search for SoWhat Podcast. Well, let's head over to our discussion with Dr. Olson. Dr. Olson, thank you for being on So What Podcast. It's a pleasure to have you here in studio. Well, thank you very much. I'm glad to be here. So we wanted to talk about Nestorius and the school of thought that developed after him and around him, Nestorianism, which is why we reached out for your expertise. Thanks. <laughs> I guess, yeah. To have this discussion and, as always, ask the question, what does it matter? Is this a heresy that we see today in the church from the pulpits in uh, a common way that we understand the person of Christ? So I guess to begin, could you just walk us through who is Nestorius and what is Nestorianism? Okay, in order to really understand what's going on with Nestorianism, we really need to look at the entire context of the Christological controversies, which really begin at the Council of Nicaea in 325 when we deal with, is Jesus really God? And then, of course, if Jesus is God, is he also man? How do we put these together? And so for Nestorius, in around 428 AD, he becomes the bishop of Constantinople, the archbishop. He is a good preacher. He comes from the school of Antioch, and the problem is Nestorius is very theologically precise and very philosophically precise. Mm -hmm. And so he's going to get himself in, into some trouble because of some of the things he says. So he notices that there are people in Constantinople who refer to Mary as Theotokos, which literally means the bearer of God more commonly referred to as the mother of God. So he goes, well, this is wrong. Mary is not the mother of God because that suggests that God has 
a starting point. Uh, or it suggests Mary is somehow eternal. Either way, we have some problems here. Mary cannot give birth to God because God has no beginning. And there were some important people that held this view. So the emperor's wife, or excuse me, his sister held this view. And she liked Mary. She was a virgin. She was very devout. And a lot of people in this time, they would, they would recognize, hey, virginity is an important thing, right? We, we can serve God wholeheartedly as virgins. And some of the, the most notable virgins of the time period would be the monks, so the monks were naturally fans of Mary. And here comes this guy who says, hey, Mary's not the mother of God. You can't say this word. And if you do, I'm not going to give you communion. Right now, that's that's pretty harsh. Yeah. And so you could look at him politically and truth to be told. OK, I, I'm a fan of Cyril. All right. Cyril is going to be the opponent of Nestorius. Cards on the table. Yeah. Early. Just going to lay these out. <laughs> you will notice there's a lot of people today who are big proponents of Nestorius and they're like oh poor Nestorius no he's he's kind of a jerk right mm -hmm. I'm just gonna say he's 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 got some issues there one of the things that makes this time period really difficult is there's a lot of political issues running around in the background mm -hmm. so Nestorius he's like you can't say this or you get no communion and that's a big deal so the the emperor's sister's upset and the monks are upset one thing you don't want to do in the east is upset the monks bad policy I always look at the monks like in Lord of the Rings, if you're familiar with the movie, when Gondor... It, it's actually a book, but that's yes. okay. I'm going first, to, I think first it was a book. I, and then I, I'm going to reference the movie <laughs> because for visual effect. Fair enough. Okay. Yeah. Visual effect, although yeah. you might have a nice picture in your mind from the books. And in all honesty, I don't remember this from the books, which I also read before and after the movies. Just to make sure they lined up, and of course, yeah, nice. issues or not, yeah. But anyway, so so if you remember in Gondor, they want to they want to or Pippin and Gandalf want to notify Rohan, so they go up to a big help signal. What do you call those things? A watchtower, you know? Beacon. Ah, yeah, perfect. The beacon. beacons are lit. Thank you, thank you. The beacons, yes. So they light the beacon, and then uh, a nearby mountain. There's a beacon that's lit, and nearby mountain of beacons, is, and 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 more or less, you can communicate from Gondor to Rohan over many miles in a very short period of time. I always liken the monks to that because once you tell that once the monks have a problem, they're going to tell other monks or they're going to tell other monks and pretty soon it's going to travel. Mm -hmm. So Nestorius can't call Mary the mother of God. You can call her the mother of Christ. Christ has a beginning, but God doesn't. Christ comes into being at his birth. He exists beforehand, but he has human flesh at that point. He's Christ. So Christotokos is okay. Theotokos is not okay. W would he have ever used the Logotokos? construction or would that be seen as not having beginning either that, logotokos yeah, that would be, being the word yeah no uh, he, he would not that would be a problem too because the logos is there in the beginning in john one right mm -hmm. so he wouldn't that never came up as far as i know are you familiar with some some new heresy no okay we're trying to create them officially the no okay good yeah. well now we have a new heretic D here did he try and substitute <laughs> the terminology of christotokos that was good for him. Christotokos yeah. is good. He right? did try and say, yes, he, yes, he did. let's use a less objectionable term. Yes, he did. Because we can say Christ has a beginning. It, mm -hmm. You know, the, he comes into time. So eventually the monks communicate down to Alexandria. So we go from Constantinople to Alexandria. Not that great of a distance. I mean, you know, we can get there in a few weeks, a few days or so. And the monks in Alexandria are concerned they go, well, well this, is, this is a problem. We, we worship Mary, or we don't worship Mary, excuse me. That's heresy. Uh, nobody worships Mary. Uh, they well, might, some people might. They might, but they are, they are heretics because you only can venerate Mary. Mm -hmm. All right, so the monks go to Cyril and they say, hey, 
um, look, the, the, the bishop up in Constantinople, he's threatening the monks. Uh, he says they can't say that, that Mary is Theotokos. And Cyril, and once again, people tend to not like Cyril. And they go, he's only politically motivated. He's not. There's some politics in the background, but really when you read the stuff, he's legitimately concerned for proper theology. He goes, oh, well, this is really bad. So he writes to Nestorius. He says, hey, look, it's come to my attention. You've been saying that we can't call Mary the mother of God. I have some problems with this because certainly Jesus is God. And when you read the letter, it's very kind. It's not condescending. He's like, hey, I have a legitimate concern here. So the letter goes to Nestorius and Nestorius is in Constantinople. I keep bringing that up because it's a very important point. And he feels like he is the bishop number one, right? The, the emperor's located there in Constantinople. I'm the bishop here. I, I'm number one. And he says, a letter from you? What? This is out of your jurisdiction. You're going to come and correct me. Well, you know, I've heard that, that several years ago, you kind of were kind of mean to some monks and kind of were a little over the top with some violence maybe. What would it sound like if that got out and we had to make a big deal of this? So Cyril's like, oh, really, we're going to play that way. He goes, hmm, first of all, I have every right to confront you on this because it's a theological error. And by the way, I hear you have a guy by the name of Pelagius who's been condemned in the West hanging out there in Constantinople with you. How would it look to the Pope if I told him you have a heretic there? And so now we got war, right? We have, at this point, the gloves are off. And it, this is Nestorius confronting Cyril, Cyril confronting Nestorius. It's getting messy. Because of the disagreement, there's going to be a council because the emperors do not like disunity in the church, going all the way back to Constantine. We need to handle this. The emperor Theodosius II calls a council to settle this. It's going to be held in Ephesus in the year 431. Now, some of the theological issues that, that come from this, Nestorius says, look, we can't suggest that God has a beginning, right? So we have to use proper terminology. For Cyril, he says, hold on a second. You're suggesting Jesus is not God. That's, that's where this is going. You, we can say Jesus is a God, right? We can say Mary's the mother of God because Jesus is God. So Nestorius continues to push for the philosophical issue. And he says rightfully, he says, look, if we say that Mary is the mother of God, eventually people will worship Mary. Cyril says, we can only affirm what our fathers have affirmed ahead of us and what the scriptures say. Nestorius says, look, we can say Mary is the mother of Christ. And we can say that she gave birth to his humanity. But we have to separate his humanity and his divinity. And if we can separate his humanity from his divinity, then we're good to go. Because Mary does not give birth to his divinity, only his humanity. Mm -hmm. So Nestorius says, look, for example, when we look at Jesus in the scripture, we can say that God uh, walked on water. And we can say that Jesus wept. You can't say God wept because God doesn't weep. You can't say a man walked on water because men don't walk on water. Jesus, God, raises Lazarus from the dead. Jesus, man, dies on a cross. This is how we can say this in Scripture. And Cyril says, whoa, 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 hold on a second. I have a problem here. And this is the theological issue that comes up. You're dividing these natures. You're taking Jesus and you're, you're separating him into two. And this is an important language construct. And unfortunately, in all of these debates, language is going to cause a lot of problems. Right. And he says, Jesus is one nature out of two. You are taking his humanity and divinity and making them two. And Nestor says, right, because Jesus exists in two natures. Cheryl says, no, he's one nature out of two. 
that's going to be the theological language that's going to come to the fight. Cyril says, all right, I have a problem here. If you were separating his natures, then you're saying that Jesus, as a human, died on a cross. Yeah, you're right. Well, but what role does God have? God can't die. He can't die on a cross. So only Jesus, a human, is dying on a cross. That means that a man, a human, is dying for another human because God can't die. Right. He goes, well, then hold on a second. So a man is sacrificing himself for a man. This doesn't work. Our salvation is affected because God is involved somehow in this transaction and you've removed him. Yeah, because God can't die. Hold on a second. And this is where Cyril really starts to just jab him. Cyril utilizes the theological construct called communicatio idiomatum, which is where he uses paradoxical language to explain the incarnation. So he says, Jesus, as God, dies on the cross. God dies on a cross. Jesus, as man, raises Lazarus from the dead. And the story is like, stop saying this. You can't say this. Right? He mm-hmm. says, no. God dies on a cross. A man raises Lazarus. Man walks on water. God weeps. And he's like, no. So he's taking all the parts of Jesus and he's using interchangeably God or man to show this is a construct you can't divide. Somehow, and he says, and this is why I would contend Cyril is an underrated theologian. He says, look, when I read the Bible, it talks about Jesus. That's it. It doesn't talk about Jesus as God. It doesn't talk about Jesus as Jesus. He's both God and man. You can't separate his natures. You can't separate the action and activity of Christ into two different things. It's Jesus. When I read the church fathers, it's just Jesus. They don't divide him up. You're guilty of this division that is not there in scripture or in church history. And what you've done is you've killed salvation because you say a human dies on a cross for a human and God is not involved at all because he can't experience death. And he goes somehow, and Cyril knows, again, the good theologians know when to play the mystery card. And I always tell my students, right, they're like, well, you say it's a mystery and people are like, you can't use a mystery card. I'm like, you can't play it too soon. I'm like, but the good theologians know when to stop. Augustine, Gregory Nazianzus, Athanasius, they know when to pull up and say, I'm just leaving it. So Cyril says, somehow God experiences death because the body of Christ has been appropriated by God. It's God's body. Therefore, God dies on a cross. Now we know he doesn't cease to exist. Cyril's like, he doesn't cease to exist, but somehow he's there in that transaction. And to remove him, kills our salvation because God has to be a part of this transaction. And if he's not there, it's a human dying for a human. That's not an effective transaction for salvation. So Cyril knows this is how this has to work. And we don't understand it. It's a mystery. It's okay. It's a mystery. But this is what the Bible says. This is what the church fathers say. And we leave it at that. So when we, when they go to the council, they arrive in Ephesus. It's Cyril and Nestorius. There's a third bishop supposed to be there named John of Antioch. John of Antioch is a friend of Nestorius. He's held up. He's sick. Then he's caught in flooding, so he can't get there. There's rains. So they go, okay, well, we'll start the council without him. And Nestorius says, all right, I'm the Bishop of, Con- I'm Bishop of Constantinople. I get to be number one. Cyril says, oh, no, no, you're the guy on trial. You can't be number one. I'm number one. And so they have a disagreement over who's in charge. Cyril and his cronies immediately excommunicate Nestorius and say, you're guilty, boom. You're no longer part of the church. He goes, forget that. I condemn you. And by this time, John of Antioch appears. He's angry that they started the council without him. And then he sides with Nestorius and says, you're condemned, Cyril. In the end, the emperor has to step in. Not, not quite like Constantinople. That was more unified. But Cyril has the help of the pope. Now, the pope's an interesting figure in the early church because in the West, he's the only bishop with any credentials. In the East, he's just another guy. And right. usually 
we consider him theologically inept. Right. All right, that's the West. Now, I'm not saying he's theologically inept. They're just like, hey, he's Latin. What the heck? Cyril goes to the Pope. He's like, hey, look, there's a guy here who says that Mary's not the mother of God. You know, what's up with that? He's like, yeah, what's up with that? That's ridiculous. So the Pope sides with Cyril. And I always look at the early church, and I look at the Pope as he's the third man in. I mean, if you have a fight with two people, you get a third man to help you, so it's a two-on-one, mm-hmm. you win. So the Pope's always like, eh, I got to fight. I need some help. I'll get the Pope, right? If I can get him on my side, we win. Pope weighs in on Cyril's side. Ultimately, the emperor steps in. Nestorius is condemned. And so that's a Council of Ephesus 431, but it's not over. John of Antioch is frustrated. He's like, this is, this is not right. Uh, and his clothes are all wet. Yeah. Which is... <laughs> Put you in a right. bad mood He's to begin with. That's right. Sniffling yeah. from his cold. That's right. And I, yeah, because he was sick before the floods, I'm pretty sure, right? Because mm-hmm. otherwise he'd be in the floods and they'd say they could just drag him while he's sick. What happens is John of Antioch is concerned and he and Cyril start to hash it out. And I think in all of this whole thing, they're the only two theologians with a good head on their shoulder. And John of Antioch says, look, when you say that Christ is one nature out of two, You've made a blended nature, right? You've taken humanity and divinity and mixed it together so that it's neither human nor divine. And I'll I'll explain that in a second. And Cyril says, no, I'm just saying that Christ is fully human and he's God and and, uh, he's he's, he's a one creature, one thing that happens to be fully God and fully man. John of Antioch says, well, that's what I believe. He exists in two natures. He's like, no, one nature. And so they realize, wait a second, we're saying the same thing. Mm John of Antioch and Cyril basically agree. Hey, 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 we can agree to disagree over language. All right, we're good. And Cyril's like, I don't like the way you use this, but the way you explained it, you're good. And John says to Cyril, I don't like the way you explain this, or I don't like the language you use, but the way you explain this, we're really saying the same thing. And like I said, to me, they're the two that understand everything. Now, you might say, well, what difference does it make if the two natures are one and it's blended, right? Because what will happen is John accuses Cyril. He says, look, you, if you put, the humanity and divinity together into one, that's neither human or divine. What do we mean? I use the example of Plato. Not, right. the, not the philosopher. No, no, no. Play doh with a D, not okay. T. Yeah. <laughs> Use both. Use both. Well, Plato could work with Nestorianism. So <laughs> with Nestorianism, this is how I explain what's, what's happening with Nestorianism is, is a duality, right? We can have with Plato. Yeah. Uh, I say, imagine you have blue Play-Doh that represents humanity and yellow Play-Doh that represents, uh, excuse me, I always use yellow for humanity. I don't know why. Blue for, for divinity. So you have yellow and blue. The Simpsons? I don't know. Maybe that's why you do it. Maybe because the Simpsons are certainly they're, human and sinful. They're, and they're yellow. Right? And they're yellow. Yeah, that's yeah. right. That's right. If you took the Play-Doh and you stuck it next to each other without any blending at all, you have yellow, you have blue. And for Nestorius, anything that the human does, you can touch the yellow Plato without ever touching the blue Plato. Everything that the human does only applies to the yellow side. Anything that the divine side only applies to the blue side. So you keep these things completely separate. So you have yellow and blue Plato together in a in a jar with a wall of separation so that the two never leak into each other. So you have two d- definite natures, but they're not interacting at all. Now the converse, and this is what John of Antioch will accuse Cyril of is he's like you've taken the humanity and divinity and mixed it together to make green play-doh is green play-doh blue no is green play-doh yellow no it is neither human nor divine it's what's called a tertium quid which means a third thing that is not divine that's not human that's some weird superhuman construct Cyril's like no 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 that's not what I'm saying at all and I have to give a shout out Jake Rainwater 
former student now at Midwestern, he said, hey, this is how Cyril's view would work. He says, imagine you get yellow sand and blue sand and mix it together uniformly. Might look green on the outside, but when you look closely, it's made up of yellow and blue particles. And when you put your finger in it, you are in involved with the yellow and blue. Everything that happens somehow involves itself with both of those. Mm-hmm. I said, well, I like that, right? We use sand, it works better. The Play-Doh will get messy. So Nestorianism, the natures are completely separate, blue and yellow, and they never involve, there's no interaction there. John of Antioch accused Cyril of green Play-Doh, you've made something different, and he's like, no, it's sand mixed together. They're like, yes, this is great. So they go their separate ways, and you'd think we're done. But then the next part's going to be with, that will lead to the Eutychian problem. So really, in terms of what happens from 428 to 433, we have the Nestorian controversy. Oh, but I will say this. Nestorius continually comes, hold on, hey, hey, hey. That's exactly what I'm saying. I'm not saying anything that's unorthodox. What I'm saying is that Jesus is yellow and blue Plato when they never touch each other. Right, that's Nestorianism, that's heresy. No, 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 that's not it at all. What I'm saying is that you have the humanity and divinity that just don't involve themselves. Right, that's exactly what we're accusing you of. And I, I feel bad for Nestorius in a sense because he, he gets kicked out, but he's so philosophically minded he can't bring himself to understand how the two natures could exist with any kind of interaction because in his mind it either makes God changeable, right, or it's like you, you can't do this. And he can't, in my mind, he's too philosophically minded. So mm-hmm. uh, he is condemned and then his views spread out towards uh, in the Middle East and eventually, right, leads all the way to China Mm -hmm. because there are Nestorian missionaries that go all the way to China in the 800s and stuff like that. I think one of the emperors of China gets rid of them all, but that's later. Um, So Nestorianism lives on, but if you read any work from about 1900 to 1994, pretty much everybody is like, oh, Nestorius really got the shaft. He was saying the same thing as everybody else. He really wasn't. And and the book I recommend, there's a book by John McGuckin, who's at St. Vladimir Seminary up in New England or New York, I think. And uh, he writes a book called John, um, Cyril of Alexandria. And it's a fantastic work. It's the only modern work on Cyril that's really in-depth. He has new translations of his work. And he basically is one that says, look, Nestorius is a Nestorian. And all the people that write since then, if they say otherwise, they're relying on works that were written in the earlier 1900s, I'm like, they're not reacting with modern scholarship because really you read modern scholarship and everybody's like, yeah, Nestorius is an Nestorian. Whether or not he should be kicked out of the church, that's a different question. But at the time, that's what you do with heretics, right? You kick them out. It's better than the Middle Ages when you just burn them. Yeah. It's ironic that after 1,500 years, Nestorius would be found to be a Nestorian. Yes. (laughs) Yes. That's right. Tough tough for him. That's exactly right. They found a work in the in the early 1900s or late 1800s, a work that ended up being called the Bazaar of Heraclides, which is just this weird misnomer for what this thing was. Yeah, really. That was a, a work of Nestorius basically trying to exonerate himself. And really, I don't think he does. And people are like, oh, he's just misunderstood. I'm like, no, he's a Nestorian, right? But people have this like sympathy he, for him. Like reiterated his own point. Yeah. yeah. And yet, interestingly, with Eutyches, everybody just continues, oh, he's Eutychian. I'm like, maybe he's not, right? I find myself more of a defender of the guy we're going to talk about later yeah, yeah. than Nestorius. I'm like, no, Nestorius is a Nestorian. But Let me uh, ask you this question then. First, um, what's interesting about your Play-Doh analogy, <laughs> Play-Doh. Yes. Is that blue is the color of Mary in Western <gasps> oh, yeah. Christian art. You're right. The aquamarine. And uh, I don't know if that holds over in Eastern iconography. I bet it but, does. I bet it does. Uh, with the Theo- Theotokos yeah. that we were talking about earlier. And, uh, 
I wonder if Joseph's yellow. You're mixing. If he yeah. was yellow, that would be incredible. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> no, I will say. Oh, I'll get. I didn't mean I, to cut I'll you off, Kyle. Kyle. No, no. no sorry. Go fine. ahead. So, so the question I was going to ask is, who cares? Okay. So what? What? I mean, when it comes to yeah, it's kind of a rude question it, for a guest. It, I'm, <laughs> out of, okay. I'm out. I'm out of here. <laughs> yeah. I'm I, I don't know if you know the the you know title of this podcast <laughs> is a rude question. Uh, I guess Thanks it depends for on who cares. Though, <laughs> honestly. <laughs> Uh, my and question, would you like to come back? <laughs> my, yeah, I'm qu- done. my question then would be, so what? Is there Nestorianism that you sense today in the church, or did it stop in 1994? <laughs> With John McGuckin. Like right. I said, John McGuckin, major scholar. I, I uh, Yeah, he also writes on Gregory Nazianzus. That's my plug for John McGuckin. Okay. But, but that's... St. Vlad's, St. Vladimir's is an yeah. Eastern Orthodox yeah, Russian seminary. Orthodox. That's right. And Nestorius was the Constantinopolian that's right. bishop. And so that's right. it's, it's interesting in- that in the East, where he was from and Ooh. where his initial defenders were. Uh, He's not finding friends anymore. Yeah, that's, that's right. That's the church that uses Theotokos mm. yeah, today. That's right. And, uh, you know, his, they knew he was wrong. Yeah. These people exposing him are, are from that yeah, church. That's right. So. That's right. He's a, he's a, um, they also have a guy named John Bear there. I'm just throwing out my plugs for, for, yeah. for my early church homies. B-E-H-R. <laughs> yes, B-E-H-R. You would These recommend guys. his three volumes on the Nicene faith. Yeah, I only have volume one and volume two, parts one and two. Does Has he come up with a volume three? Well, sorry, that's what I mean. So oh, the yeah, three yeah, volumes, yeah. part one and two, yeah. volume part two. He's, these, are, these are like theological Eastern Orthodox heavyweights that mm-hmm. I recommend to anybody. Like they are top-notch scholars that, that I would affirm most everything they say other than some of their ecclesiology right mm-hmm. but um i always say this is a good question because first of all you can probably make anybody and if you're a protestant church you can probably uh show that they're actually nestorians just by asking them if mary is the mother of god so whenever i ask my class how many of you believe mary's mother of god i'll get maybe two hands and it's probably just because they're guessing the catholics will get it right but everybody else, how many people think Mary is not the mother of God? And they'll raise their hand. I'm like, okay, good. You're all Nestorian heretics. Because <laughs> because now, to their credit, just like Nestorius, they're going, well, God doesn't have a beginning, right? They get that part. Yeah. But they miss the part that, yeah, but Jesus is God, and we have to say this to affirm his divinity. My students will ask me a lot, can I refer to my students? Am I allowed to say that? You you can say that. I, I wouldn't use a name unless no, no, you're no. praising them. Jake Rainwater. Did. Jake Rainwater. Oh, Jake Rainwater. Rainwater. I always give yeah. him credit. <laughs> um, so that if ever becomes famous, he gets credit. Uh, so anyway, he, um, no, my students, I'll ask, they'll ask, well, is this, can somebody be an historian and be in heaven? And I'm always, you know, be saved. I'm like, well, you know, what does the Bible say about salvation? You know, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It all depends on Christ. So yeah, I think they can. I think the problem is, and the reason it's important is, we want our theology to be as biblical as possible. And obviously, if you play this out, you could say you have a man dying for another man. And that's a problem. Whether or not I believe that Nestorius was trusting in a man for his salvation or not, no, he's trusting in Christ, who happens to be God and man. I think his theology is wrong, but I don't think that it's to the point where it would it would bar him from salvation. But as I said, we always we want to be as biblical as possible, and if you have a position that's not biblical, it needs to be abandoned, whatever it is. Whenever they say, well, so what? I'm like, well, this is important because we want to be orthodox, we want to be biblical, and ultimately we, we need to recognize that this is a mystery, right? We're not going to be able to sit here and nail it down into these strict philosophical forms. Mm-hmm. It, there's something to be said for understanding that God is beyond our comprehension in certain ways. He's revealed himself to us in Scripture. 
He's given what we need to know about him, but it's not everything about him, right? And so we can affirm there's a mystery without being considered theological ninnies. Because some people, oh, you said mystery, that's a ninny. No, no, no. A good theologian knows when to play the mystery card. Mm -hmm. You just don't want to play it too early. You don't want to play it too late because then you're a heretic. That's what I would say for the so what. It's important to be biblical. It's important to know the transaction that takes place when we're saved. It's important to understand that we need our Savior to be both man and God, and that there has to be some interaction there. Which is why I always like the hymn, End Can It Be, by Charles Wesley, because it has the line in there uh, that thou, my God, wouldst die for me. And I'm like, Cyril would be happy. <laughs> this is Cyril at his best in Charles Wesley. Yeah. I didn't know Cyril was Wesleyan. I guessed Nestorius <laughs> might be Nestorian, <laughs> but I didn't know Cyril was Wesleyan. Yeah. That, that's very good. I, I want to acknowledge the difficulty of some of this because we... If we look at the New Testament, we have a revelation from God. It's a new revelation from God that the Jews weren't ready to receive by and large. They were, it was a scandal to them. It was foolishness to the Greeks and a scandal to the Jews. And they crucified Jesus and tried to kill his followers. But we have language in the New Testament like John 1, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Where it's not entirely worked out for us, you know, right. we don't get the language of, you know, hypostasis. We don't get right. the language of, you know, um, natures necessarily. You have verses like in Colossians 1, 19, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, mm. referring to Christ. Or again in 2, 9, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And so, I don't know, maybe you could comment on, so for now a few hundred years we have... Uh, ministers, essentially, priests and bishops who are charged with, in the face of persecution, caring for the spiritual welfare of their flocks under very difficult circumstances, certainly up until Constantine, and then having to try and unpack this dense theological sentences in the New Testament in a way that, you know, now we have some mingling with Greek philosophy and some other things, like how can we preach this to the people in a way that, what, what will my sermon on it consist of? And your initial statement about Nestorius at the beginning would, to most theologians, sound like a compliment where you said his problem was that he was too precise or that he was too right, concerned right. with a careful construction right, of right. language. You know, that for many people, that might be what they want in their pastor or, um, you know, in the, in the theologian that they're reading. So maybe you want to comment on any of that or... Uh, yeah, I think, I think one of the things that's difficult is being teaching historical theology or if you're doing systematic theology or these kind of things, you're, you're dealing with, with elements of speculation where, where somebody is in a position where they're just speculating, and that's okay. But I think it, it, it's um, what can happen is, is they can focus so much on philosophical nuances, which is not bad, except it can lead you away from just the simple text of the Bible. And, and I mean, from a historical theology perspective, you see this with the scholastics, Catholic scholasticism, which again, I don't think is bad, but you can see they're starting to argue points that seem to be, it's good you want to argue these, but, but at some point we have to try to come back and see, well, how does this influence how, how I worship? How does this influence how I love my neighbor and how I love God? But then the Protestants do it as well with Protestant scholasticism in, in the 1600s, especially amongst the Reformed, where they you have the superlapsarianism, infralapsarianism, emeraldianism, and they start to, to go, uh, did God create first, or did he first elect 
certain people and then create and allow the fall. And again, I'm okay with speculating. The problem becomes when it becomes divisive because we have to recognize there's a point where we don't understand everything and we have to have the humility to say, okay, we can agree to disagree. I often bring this up in class. Actually, I always bring this up. When in class, we deal with Calvinism and Arminianism. Now, I'm a harmonious person. I don't like division. But I say, look, historically speaking, we recognize, you know, Calvinism has been around for 1,600 years in some way, even though Calvin died in 1564. But, you know, in some degree with the whole idea of election and stuff, right? It goes back to Augustine, or you could say Paul, but still, theologically, in the realm of historical theology, Augustine is really the first one who brings us up. And for 1,600 years, the Western church has been wrestling with this. It's not something that you only see in Augustine and then all of a sudden you see in Calvin. You see this throughout church history. They're trying to figure this out. So I have some people that will be hardcore in, in a certain certain view, and I always want to say that's fine, but there's also some people that will look at some other verses and are within the realm of orthodoxy that we can at least should be able to agree to disagree with. So, because in the end, right, what are we supposed to do? Love God, love neighbor. What's one of the best ways we love neighbor? We preach the gospel to them so they can hear. And you do that if you're a Calvinist, you do that if you're an Arminian. Either way, you're going to be doing this. And Maybe and, you even do it if you're a Nestorian. And a Nestorian would. Yeah. Again, I would say with the Nestorians, their, their theological construct is a little off. I always say, if we made Christianity a football field, and everybody that's considered orthodox is on the football field, you have some heresies that are just right there on the sidelines. You have some that are in the stands, and then you have some, you're outside the stadium, you're not saved, right? You deny the deity of Christ, you deny the resurrection. I'm like, you're out in the parking lot, you're not even in the game. And so some, like Apollinarianism, I'm like, you're right there on the sideline. Apollinarianism, I'm like, yeah, you're pretty good, you're just a little off. And so Nestorianism, I look at, you're probably on the sidelines, right? This is not a heresy that I would say bars you from salvation, but I always say, but we want to be biblical we want to stay with what the church fathers have said. And and if we start to affirm something that's not biblical, it can lead to dark places. It can lead to where eventually we could see this division, which which I'm not sure we ever do with the Nestorians. I think one of the more serious dangers you've touched on, which is what's happening on the cross, this transaction. Because for Athanasius, right, the significance of the Savior has to be divine and he has to be man. Mm-hmm. And if he's not both in that moment, then salvation is ineffective. That's right. Um, and so there's there's an edge to Nestorianism when it specifically when it comes to the atonement right. that is quite dangerous. We're touching on a, a, a themes that are just recurrent in this series, and mm-hmm. one would expect that they would be. But this dialectic between unity and freedom, on the one hand, within the and I want it to be a beautiful meadow of orthodoxy where there's lots of space to roam yeah. and to graze. <laughs> I like that. And health uh, and to play. Christ plays in 10,000 places, that line from Jared Manley Hopkins, uh, which I love. But there comes a point when you need to, as Cyril thought he had reached at least, directly oppose a teaching that you think is not just aberrant or, you know, a possible interpretation, but one that you think could be potentially damning to those yeah. who follow yeah. it. And today we are not uh, pronouncing anathemas on one another, or at least maybe in blogs we are, but uh, <laughs> in the Protestant church that's meted out a little dif- uh, differently. But it's still something we need to wrestle with, it, wouldn't you say, of w- where is Christian unity to be sought versus where is something, w- when does something need to be opposed? Yeah, I, I tell my students a lot of times, right, 
I'm very harmonious until I come to a point where I think that you've gone outside the bounds of, of orthodoxy. And I think the problem is you'll have, you know, everybody has their limits. And one of the things that I find to be strange, I guess, is in some circles I'm considered to be liberal because I've gone outside their bounds of what they consider to be orthodox. For example, the form of the, the, the fact I'm not using a King James Bible. Like for some people that's worth fighting over. And I'm like, Wait, that's uh, what? We need better vetting for this show. That's unbelievable. Oh, you've never heard that? No, that you're the podcast KJV that, only. Oh, you we didn't are, know that the we, podcast we're, was we're KJV, KJV only. Oh, I'm sorry. We have four listeners. You didn't see all, uh, <laughs> Sorry. Oh, I don't <laughs> How did you walk past the sign that sorry. says 1611? Oh, sorry. Well, the funny thing is most of them don't use 1611, right? Cuz they don't have the apocrypha. I'm like, "Hey, what? I, I want to go to a King James only <laughs> church preach from the apocrypha when they don't have it declare them all liberals." Because I'm like, well, you're not, you don't have the version with the Apocrypha. That's not 1611. To, uh, to return to your analogy, you right. like <laughs> harmony, but it's hard to sing in harmony if someone near you is singing out of tune. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the louder their voice and the further off scale it is, the yeah. more discordant it affects. That's you know, good. The, the more it affects the music. You're a music person. I'm not. I'm not a music person I, at all. I don't. I can't sing in tune, so. No. I'm, I'm a musical heretic. But harmonia, that's a good yeah, that's analogy. Good. Yeah, for, that's good. Um, yeah, and I don't, I don't, like, I, I, you know, as it, I think. Like, at some point, you might have stopped singing and say, this guy's got to shut up or we're not going to be able to sing the song right. <laughs> right. right. And if exactly, he's not going to yeah. shut up, then he's going to have to leave the choir. Yeah. And, and, and Or if he's not going to sing in tune, he's going to have to leave the choir. Yeah, for me, it's always, right, I always go, we have to see where this is in Scripture. And then I also, you know, I have to admit, right, I have a rule of faith. When I look back over time and go, here's what all my spiritual ancestors have said, how to interpret this passage, this verse. Now, obviously, sometimes we have some disagreements because not all the people I'm looking at are going to agree. Luther's not going to agree with certain things in the Catholic Church. And so I, I at that point, I step in to which my Catholic brethren are like, seem a little inconsistent there. You're fine with the Catholic fathers until all of a sudden you decide you're not fine with them anymore. Who's your authority there? Uh, me. <laughs> the Bible is what my authority is, but right. uh, but I do think that with with the the um, the issue of of what are the essentials. I mean, I do think that's crucial, and it's good. Uh, I look at something like the Evangelical Theological Society, which, of course, there's some issues that are going to be coming up there too. With uh, yeah, they're meeting right issues. now and that's having right. meetings on the Trinity, yeah. and I'm not there these days. Counc Council of San Antonio right now. Mm -hmm. That's right. That's right. This is kind of a proto-council, right? Because then it'll come to a vote <laughs> later, I guess. But, but you know, it's something that, that we do need to be concerned about. And unfortunately, what you also see through the history of Christianity is you either have a focus on doctrine or, unfortunately, a focus on practice. And, and you always want to hit that middle line between I have proper doctrine and I have proper practice. Because you can look, you know, all the way back to the monks in the Middle Ages, they would be really strict and then all of a sudden they'd go to laxity strict and we see that with doctrine we'll be like we need to get our doctrine down and then they're like you guys only focus on doctrine and you're incredibly unloving with how you treat other people we need to love other people and then all of a sudden doctrine goes out the window mm -hmm. and then they're like wait you guys love everybody there's nothing on the line anymore we need to come back over to orthodoxy you know and so we always want to hit that middle spot where we have that balance uh and that and that's apparently hard to do you know because all through history it's very rare that you get it. I, I honestly think we're at a point, I could be wrong, right? But I think we're at a point where we've we've come back from what I would consider to be bad practice. When I look at the 20th century evangelical Christianity in America, I'm like, there's a lot of issues 
that we're having to w deal with the mess today because of what they failed to do. And I think you're going back to a correction there. And then we just have to hope we can land it and stay there. But instead, we'll probably go past the line and focus more on doctrine at the expense of certain things. Again, I always say doctrine. You have to have your doctrine right. You have to have the, the, the practice part. You have to have them in balance. And it's just hard to get that. Yeah. And the, I mean, the division is really a superficial one if you think about it biblically between what one person knows and what he does or, yes. uh, you know, it's, it's an artificial distinction to believe something. And yet, I and, mean, yep. that's not to say there's not a struggle with sin and, you know, remaining sin in the flesh, but to really believe something is to, to love and to do. And mm -hmm. Jesus says, go and do likewise. And it's, so it's, you know, that's right. you, someone you, who is, only concerned with doctrine and hates his brother who he can see can't yeah. love God who he doesn't see despite how orthodox yeah. his yeah. statement of faith is. And it's like a Nestorianism lived out, right? I say I love yeah. God and I have proper doctrine, but it doesn't seem to, to work itself mm -hmm. out in daily practice. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so That's good. Yeah. I, I was going to say what, what, I, what I thought of that I think is interesting is, is Athanasius, when he was dealing with the Arian controversy, he was annoyed that he had to cease from worshiping God in his mystery and being forced to have to try to explain it. He saw that as, oh, I just want to worship God in his mystery. And now because of these people like Arius, I have to stop and try to define this mm -hmm. in some way. And I think Cyril would have said the same thing, right? We worship God, we worship Christ as a mystery and we're fine with that. And now we have to come and put a formula to it and everything else. And I think you find that's how theology works even today, right? Because somebody will have some aberrant view or, uh, or a, an unorthodox view on marriage or something, and all of a sudden you're like, all right, now we have to go and we have to define, here's what we believe the Bible teaches about marriage. We never had to do that before, but that's how creeds work, it's how councils work. All of a sudden something comes up, we have to deal with it. People are like, you're just making this up. We're like, no, we're in line with all of the church history and the Bible. You're the one who's stepping outside the lines that force us to draw the line that we all knew was there. You didn't somehow, and so we're showing you this is where the line is. So anyway. I have an encouragement for all of Bob Olson's students on the first day of class after the syllabus is handed out, return with an Athanasian objection that you just want to worship God and his mystery. And now you're being forced to explain right. all of these different doctrinal points. And it's really annoying. And then and class uh, would be done. Yeah. And That's then it. see. Everybody gets you an might, A, we're yeah, out. You might, you might get the semester off. Who knows? Uh, it would be sad. So what? What's the matter with Nestorius anyway? Well, unfortunately, his idea of the two natures of Christ, that being his human nature and his God nature, never interacting is a severe problem. It detracts from the atoning work of Christ, which requires the fully God, fully man Messiah, who is able to fully atone for the sins of finite humanity against an infinite God. Yet, as a reminder, lest we press too hard into articulating the mystery of Christ's nature as the God-man, we are reminded that it is indeed an incredible mystery. If there is any theological point to approach with humility, it is surely our thoughts about God's very existence. We'd like to invite you back next time as we continue talking with Dr. Robert Olson on Eutyches and Eutychianism.